Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today we're speaking with Sandra Heimann about medieval manuscripts. In 1991, Sandra founded Les Illumineurs, a business dedicated to selling manuscripts and miniatures from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Les Illumineurs has galleries in Paris, Chicago and New York, and it also offers rings and jewellery from the same periods. Sandra and her colleagues organise about four or five exhibitions a year and also exhibit at major art and antique shows around the world. Clients include the Louvre in Paris and the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York and the National Gallery of Art in Washington DC and the Getty Museum in Los Angeles. Naturally, Sandra is an expert on medieval and renaissance manuscript illumination. Now remember, illumination is when beautiful initials, marginalia and miniature illustrations are added to a manuscript. And remember that a manuscript is a handwritten document. So, Sandra's day-to-day job is handling some of the most beautiful objects created during the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Sandra is a Professor Emerita of Art History at Northwestern University. She's also the author, co-author or editor of more than 10 books as well as numerous articles on the history of illuminated manuscripts and medieval rings. So, welcome Sandra. Thank you, Richard. I'm delighted to be here for this Abe podcast. I look forward to speaking with you. It's, uh, it's lovely to have you. All right, so what are you? How do you describe yourself? Are you an academic, a bookseller, a historian, or an art expert? I get asked that a lot, actually. And um, I think I usually say I'm an art historian, or I'm a medievalist. Um, I, I People often think that there's some kind of a split between being an academic and selling medieval manuscripts, but I sort of think of it as my left arm and my right arm, that it's all part of who I am as an art historian, a medieval art historian. So you began life as an academic, though, and then moved into the commercial world. So what prompted that uh, change of career? Well, it was a very long move. It probably took me 20 years to make that move. And I, um, I guess the, like the short reason is the following. Academics don't work with objects in their daily life. Like you can go to a museum or a library and put in a call slip for a manuscript and study it for the afternoon, but you can't live with it in your house and study it as part of your daily life. And frankly, when I actually I started by serving as an expert, quote unquote, for other book dealers or manuscript dealers and having the material in my house with daily access, like reading a book of hours in bed, was so kind of compelling that eventually I moved over, as it were, although I don't really consider it a move, um, into the what you call the commercial world. So perhaps you could describe um, what I would see if I stepped into one of your galleries today. So, obviously, I'm speaking to you in the time of COVID-19. 
but we're going to hope that's going to be over soon and we we would would be able to visit one of your galleries what would i see well we do have, we have open galleries as you said in paris and chicago and new york and they're similar um in the sense that we um, during a, a normal week, that is when there isn't a special exhibition, we display a range of our inventory. So we'll have medieval illuminated manuscript leaves, that is pages or cuttings that come from books on the walls. We'll have medieval illuminated and also text manuscripts and cases. And we'll probably have a selection of medieval and renaissance jewelry out on display in the galleries then we you mentioned we do exhibits so we do exhibits like three times a year in new york and more exceptionally in paris and chicago so there might be an exhibit on women in the book or intimacy in books of hours there might be a special exhibit um at one time or another in the gallery or one of the galleries so how do you find the the objects the manuscripts the rings the art that you offer for sale it's, it's surely it's a different process from what a a bookshop would go through well i like to say that they find us and in a certain sense that's true we're highly highly specialized and just a few clicks on your computer if say your mother left you an illuminated manuscript just a few clicks would probably find us and um so certainly we buy from people who contact us that's i should say that's even more true of rings and jewelry for which there is absolutely no real auction market but in terms of auctions i mean we buy at auction all over the world i have one person who practically all she does is consult um, auction catalogs online mostly now but also in print i can buy a rare medieval text manuscript i used to say from a fax but now it's from a picture because we have time to describe them and we have the expertise and often auctions are you know they're in a rush they have to produce their catalog they have to sell it they may under describe it um and not quite know what they have so i would say auctions and private sources who contact us are the main um the main sources that we have now you offer high-end items uh and one thing that does make you different it seems is that a uh, a traditional bookseller would have thousands of items for sale, whereas with you, it's a much smaller number. Uh, would I be correct in saying that, yes? Certainly, you're correct in saying that. Um, but, you know, how small? Do we have less than 100 objects? No, absolutely not. We have way more than that. At any one time, we probably have 200 text manuscripts in the process of being described, sold. We might have 50 books of ours. Again, maybe not all for sale at the moment because we describe our manuscripts and put them aside and work on them. A couple of hundred rings, 50 or so miniatures. So actually, we have quite a lot of inventory in our field. 
although we don't have thousands and thousands of books, first editions, second editions, etc., as the quote-unquote normal rare bookseller might. Right. Uh, perhaps you can describe a couple of items uh, that you currently have for sale, perhaps illuminated manuscripts or, or whatever you'd like to tell us about? Two manuscripts come to mind immediately. The first one is the so-called small hours or the petitzer of Charles VIII. Charles VIII was the last 15th century king of France, and it was his personal prayer book with pictures. His arms are throughout, um, his special royal necklaces there, the special saints that he prayed to are there. It's an incredible, you know, are the royal insignia, and it's illuminated by one of the artists who worked largely for the royal court, and it fits in the palm of your hand, so you can imagine him, like, taking it to parliament meetings, maybe even taking it on the wars to Italy. It's an incredible pictorial piece of history. The second manuscript is totally different. It's large, it's big folio, it doesn't fit at all in the palm of your hand. It's called the Schembart book. Schembart is um, German for beard, and actually it's an illustrated history of carnival in Nuremberg over nearly a hundred years. It's got some 80 pictures, each page a picture of the family who sponsored Carnival on Shrove Tuesday in Nuremberg with their costume, masks on their face, um, sometimes holding firecrackers. And then our Schumbart book, there are about 80 Schumbart books known. Ours also has pictures of the floats that they dragged through the city. In fact, um, the Schumbart, the Carnival, was finally outlawed in Germany in Nuremberg after they burned down the city twice. And it's only after Carnival um, was abolished that these pictorial records, kind of like illuminated scrapbooks of Carnival, were made. Ours is made for one of the families who sponsored Carnival in two different years, and that family owned it all the way up to the 19th and 20th century. Their arms are still in it. So it's an incredible piece of secular or everyday history, again, illuminated. So now I really understand why you say you're still a historian. Because I'm passionate about the material and love explaining it. This is what I say. I mean, I'm still teaching. Uh, you can't be a medieval manuscript dealer if you aren't also a teacher because you need to make the material accessible to everyone, your clients and all of your would-be clients. And I'm also imagining that a king's personal book would be the finest of the finest in its day. Absolutely. It is one of the one of the star manuscripts I've handled, and it is exceptionally fine. Small, uh, but you know, small was also a sign of royalty. There's a kind of renaissance of miniature masterpieces at the royal court. 
starting with, you know, the hours of Jean de Vroux, which is on display at the Cloisters in the Metropolitan. That was for royalty, too. Now, I, I understand why um, uh, some of the world's top institutions would want to have a, a, a medieval manuscript, but perhaps you can explain to me how you got into rings. Uh, wh where did that interest come from, and, and is there a connection between books and rings? Again, a question I'm often asked, um, because uh, initially it seems so different, whereas to me it seems like all part of the same thing, again. Um, you know, rings are, like manuscripts, precious materials, gold and precious metals. We don't handle, for the most part, silver, bronze, um, base metals. So they're precious materials, just like illuminated manuscripts are, even some of the same precious materials. And they're small and tactile, um, like you hold a manuscript in your hand. You wear a ring. So it's not so different. In fact, we're planning a show, which we'll probably still do once um, the world can go back to galleries, on intimate objects of the Middle Ages. And books of ours and rings will both be central parts of it and other jewelry that you wear. So with a ring, how would you accurately date a ring? Like all fields, it's partly about um, about comparisons. You need to know what's similar. First of all, it's historical context. Where are rings of this typology? What do they look like? Are any of them dated by archaeological evidence? I mean, rings in major collections, that is. Um, so that's a very crucial part of it. But also... Um, you know, it's the material. I mean, I've held rings in every major museum and collection in the world. I've gone through all of their rings. So part of it is the experience of holding it, seeing it under the microscope, examining it. But unlike for manuscripts, for objects in which you have even the slightest question, there is laboratory analysis, too, and we do that um, for especially for exceptional cases. So even a plain gold band, you'd be able to identify the era? Probably, yes. Partly, I mean, I, it wouldn't be a plain gold band without any inscription. Like most plain gold bands from the Renaissance are posy rings, so they have writing in them. And so just as you, just as paleographers can identify script and the date of script, you can identify the approximate date of the engraving of the writing that is in the ring. So what's a posy ring, if you don't mind me asking? Posies. Well, it's, it's um, from poesy or I poetry. See. So Shakespeare talks about them. They really um, come into popularity during Shakespearean England. So it would have a line of text on it? It would have a line of text. Um, is this a prologue or the posy of a ring? Tis brief, my lord, like woman's love. That's in Hamlet, and that's a posy. So you could give it or to a lover a posy. or a friend or a... A friend's gift is another common posy. Right. They often rhyme. So the rhyming is 
part of why they're called poesy or poetry. Okay. Um, now, your, your clientele, uh, well, they're, they're all museums and galleries that we would all love to visit, that many of us have visited. Um, how do you find doing business with them? Um, do you, uh, is it done over a glass of wine or is it over telephone calls or through big art exhibitions? How do you go about sealing those deals? Well, of course, we don't only sell to museums, fancy museums. I mean, museums are uh, a part of our business, and we love selling to museums because we like works of art to go into the public domain, especially um, when they belong in that domain. Um, but we do sell to many, many, many private collectors as well. But in terms of museums, remember, I'm an academic or I said that was a word that doesn't describe me, but I am partly an academic. So most people who work in museums, curators, directors, et cetera, are people I already know well. So it is in person, typically not over a glass of wine, and it's a professional conversation, and not typically either at an art fair. Art fairs are crowded places. They're places to meet new clients. They're not really places to do business with established um, clients. So most museums that I do business with, I would go and see them, or they would come and see me. And we would sit and in their offices or my galleries and we would have a conversation and look at works of art together. And if there was a piece of, uh, or, or a manuscript they were interested in, you take it along, right? Yes, it's a process. Um, I would take it if it were appropriate. Um, in some cases, you know, it, it isn't appropriate and you would go and discuss something hypothetically first and then send it through their registrar, etc. But preferably, it would be with the work of art, and often it would be not only with the curator, but with a curatorial committee where you would look together at something um, and discuss it. Right. Um when you're transporting one of these items, one of these uh, manuscripts that are hundreds of years old, I presume you have to take special precautions. Well, we don't really transport anything ourselves. Uh, we have shippers, sometimes um, couriers. Uh, so absolutely, there are special precautions. Um, when we sold uh, the Leesborn Gospels to the country of Germany, um, they even wanted to do a video showing the armored cars and the we had a courier and the airplane taking off and the discussion with customs and finally the meeting in the bank and the police guard that followed the armored car. It was quite amusing. It was like a James Bond sale of a medieval manuscript. Sounds very glamorous, Sandra. It's not really. Uh, people do say that. I mean, there are a lot of airplanes. Now, now there are no airplanes um, in this particular world we're in for the short time, hopefully. But I, it's not glamorous, but it is fun. It's a great deal of fun. Now, uh, a few times in our conversation, you've mentioned uh, a book of hours. Now, 
for the benefit of everyone, perhaps you can explain what are books of hours and why they are so important today, but also back in the Middle East, in, in the Middle Ages. Um, why do they keep coming up again and again? So books of hours, it's often said it's the bestseller of the late Middle Ages. We decided to abandon the word bestseller and call them must-haves because they probably were must-haves to their clientele then. We're talking they're created in the 13th century, they grow out of religious books, and most books of hours are made for, like, everyday people in the 15th century and even beyond into the 16th. So they are books of picture books. They're picture books, and they're books of um, prayers for the hours of the day, that is the monastic hours. So imagine these people sitting in towns in Paris or Rouen or Amiens, and the church bells are ringing, you know, every um, every hour and then every um, every eight hours a day to signal the monastic chant. So here are these people who they want a book like they want to be armchair monks and armchair nuns, and books of hours take off and they become the illuminated manuscript that every family, even if they own only one book, owns. And their picture galleries, I mean, they were picture books then. It's, imagine, it's an art gallery in your hand now. Then it was the book that um, you taught your children to read with. You recorded the um, birth dates of your children. You recorded when you went to someone's baptism. If you were the godparent, they were family heirlooms. Um, they survive as these incredible historical records of the Middle Ages. And we talked earlier about rings, but books of hours, more than any other kind of manuscript, they're so tactile. They're intimate. You hold them in the hand. As you turn the pages, there's sound. All the senses are ignited. The sense of of uh, sight, especially in the gorgeous pictures, the gold leaf, the blue, all the senses except smell or taste, maybe. Well, you can smell the parchment. Um, you don't typically taste your book of hours. But they, I, I hope that explains, um, sort of jumping around a little, why they were popular then and why they continue to be so interesting now. What other... What what else can you buy, either in the book or art world, that is an art gallery in your hand? So, were they typically small and designed to be portable? They are typically small, although we happen to have one of the biggest ones, too, which is, you know, a foot and a half high. That's unusual. They are typically something that you wouldn't necessarily put it in your pocket, but... For booksellers' talk, they are typic, more typically quarto and even octavo than they ever are folio in size. Right. Uh, think of today's paperbacks when you, you carry a book on your road trip. It gets dog-eared. It gets beaten up. 
um, how have so many copies of books of hours survived through the centuries? They were there were so many made. I mean, there were so many. Imagine, like school teachers, probably everyone but farmers had them, or you know, people who didn't read. School teachers had them. Lawyers had them. Women had them, men had them, kings and queens had them. You passed them down through the family. They were treasured, too. So unlike certain kinds of um, uh, books and other sorts of art, they were not destroyed because they were so treasured. Um, Printed books of ours, which, you know, we also do early printed, especially illuminated books of ours, 2,500 editions were printed over just 70 years in Paris alone. So I think I've touched on this in previous podcasts, but the industry producing uh, manuscripts was significant. Yes, it was, for sure. Um, and, uh, And books of ours... You could buy, we didn't, I didn't say this already, but you could buy a book of hours off the shelf or you could have it made to measure. So you could buy one without your name in it or your picture or you could buy one that had, like, like Charles VIII bought one, that he ordered it. He had his picture, well, not his picture, but he had his arms, his necklace, his insignia, his saints. It was entirely customized. But they were also produced um, like beautiful ones. Ones that are extensively illuminated were probably produced and sold in shop windows. And, you know, uh, if you, the more money you had, the more personalized it was. So it sounds like you've got an immense passion for, for books of hours. I do, I do. I mean, I like all my manuscripts. I mean, you could get me talking about text manuscripts and I could wax and wane about a Cicero, but it's true. I love books of hours. Is there one that you've been most fond of? Not necessarily the most expensive or the king's books of hours, but um, something that really caught your eye? You know, it's interesting because there is one. I was, I'm trying to write something now on Books of Hours, and I was thinking back through all of our inventory. And I had a Book of Hours from the 13th century, which is very early. It's when they start being made. So there are not so many from then. And it had an original binding, and the original binding was um, Spanish, even though the book was French. And... um, And because it had its original binding, it still had lots of notations of the original owner, who turned out to have been a Catalan textile merchant. And we knew that because on the fly leaves, you talked about carrying a paperback with you on a trip. Well, he must have carried this with him on a trip, because on the front paste downs, it has a list of his textile inventory, how many bolts of this cloth or that cloth, and on the back paste down, it has the upcoming textile fairs that he's going to, like, are you going to Maastricht or the New York Book Fair or Masterpiece, or they're all written down, so he can keep his inventory straight and he can keep where he's going to 
sell his inventory while he's turning the pages of this portable book of hours he's taking with him. It was incredible. I think we could probably do uh, another episode on books of hours, so maybe we'll, we'll invite you back, Sandra, and we'll just go into this subject. No, I'd love that. Yeah. That would be great fun. Yeah, I think that would be fun as well. All right, uh, last question, Sandra, which we asked to all our guests. Uh, what book or books are you currently reading? Reading, yes, I did think about this. So actually, I'm reading a cookbook right now. And it's a kind of unusual cookbook. It's called Pasta Grannies. <laughs> and it is a cookbook um, written by a woman, an American woman who's lived in Italy for many years. And she goes around filming, and there's a YouTube channel too, which I highly recommend. They're two minutes each, these segments. She goes around filming Italian grandmothers who make pasta like the old-fashioned way in out-of-the-way towns, like types of pasta that have disappeared. And so the cookbook, the, webs, the, the YouTube channel is five years old, but the cookbook is relatively recently published where she put in print memory pictures of these um, pasta grannies. The eldest one in the cookbook is 100 and their recipes and it's a great read i highly recommend it excellent yeah i'm actually having a hard time concentrating to read at the moment so uh well i recommend pasta <laughs> granny then yeah I, I i resorted to a tashin book called uh, new york times explorer which has about i don't know 50 60 locations visual locations lots of photography and then short descriptions of all these places around the world which i'm finding far more digestible than uh, just a wall of text in a book at the moment. Right, right. Well, like pasta grannies, I guess. Yeah, I'll look that one up because I, I am doing a lot of cooking. Yes, I think we might all be doing a lot of cooking now. Yes. All right. All right, Sandra. Uh, that's all we have time for this week. Uh, okay, Richard. Thank you. That was great fun. I really enjoyed it. Um, ask me again. I would love to um, do another podcast with you anytime you wish. Absolutely. Many thanks, Sandra. That's the owner of Le uh, Les Illumineurs for us for joining us. Uh, you can learn more about Sandra's fascinating business at uh, lesillumineurs.com. You can find it on the internet. Uh, and we hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll see you again soon.